eating, loving, singing, and digesting are the four acts of a comic opera called Life that bursts like bubbles in a bottle of champagne. You know who said that? No, who? Rossini. Oh, Rossini. Well, let's talk about Rossini. Yeah, okay. Okay, so today it's a classic battle of the sexes story. A cautionary tale of what can go wrong when the arranged do not agree to their arranged marriages. L'Italiana in Algeri is back at the Met this season in a big way with an old production that can only be called Over the Top. And today we're going to cover all the details. That's on He Sang, She Sang, the show about opera from classical New York, WQXR. Hi. I'm Mike Shobe. And I'm Marin Lazian. And a little later today, we'll be joined by Ying Fang and Rihab Shayeb, who are in the Met production this season. But first, we have Fred Plotkin, author of Opera 101, A Complete Guide to Learning and Loving Opera, and opera columnist for WQXR's Operavore, not to mention an Italy lover. Welcome, Fred. Lovely to be with you. Buongiorno. Obviously, we're talking about Rossini. And uh, before we get into the, the nitty-gritty of this opera and what it means to everybody, let's talk a little bit about the cast of characters and the plot. Fred, what's going on in this opera? Okay, so the opera is set in Algiers about 200 years ago. And the title character, the Italian girl in Algiers, or the Italian woman in Algiers, which is how I would call her, is named Isabella. And she's the smartest person in the room. There is Lindoro, her tenor, whom she loves, and she comes to rescue him. This is very important because most operas, the man rescues the woman, but only Beethoven's Fidelio and this one have a rescue of a man by a woman. Then there's Mustafa, who rules Algiers. He's a base. He's horny. Every woman he sees, whether it's his wife or someone in his harem, is a woman he wants. And when he sees this Italian woman, he says, that's what I want. Then there's his wife, Elvira, and other characters, including Taddeo, who's an Italian older man who is besotted with Isabella. We were all besotted with Isabella. And he follows her to Algiers. Isabella comes to rescue Lindoro. She bewitches Mustafa. She even bewitches the eunuchs, which is not an easy thing to do, and ultimately smartly extricates Lindoro, takes the Italians back to Italy, including the Italian slaves, and it's a victory for Italy, and Mustafa marries or remains with his beloved Elvira. So everybody's happy in the end? Well, I don't think Tadeo is very happy because he wants... Isabella, but instead she goes with Lindoro, the one she loves, the tenor. Always the tenor. Almost mm -hmm. always the tenor. Um, when was this opera written? And uh, just for some context, what was going on in the world at that really time? Really important. It was premiered in Venice on May 22nd, 1813, which is a very important day in music history. It was the day that Richard Wagner was born. And it gives us a context in terms of time frame of when Rossini lived. He was born in 1792 and died in 1868. And Wagner was born in 1813, as was Verdi. And Wagner died in 1883. So 
Rossini was slightly older. He was the most important composer in Europe, not at the age of 21, but very soon thereafter. 21 was his age when this opera premiered, is that right? Yes. What were we doing when we were 21? I hate to tell you. (laughs) And he already, this was his 11th opera, and this this is a masterpiece. And he wrote it in 27 days. Now, it premiered in Venice. Venice was contested by Napoleon and by the Habsburgs in Vienna. In this period from 1812 to 1815, all of Europe was at war. I don't want listeners to think of this just as a little sex farce. This is really an opera about Italian identity, which is why it's called The Italian Woman or The Italian Girl in Algiers, because Italy is adrift. Italy is not yet a, a republic, a unified nation, And Rossini takes this opera through comedy, and he signals the call, even before Verdi was born, for Italian national unification. And he does that by showing the resourcefulness, the cleverness, the ability to survive adversity that is Isabella. Because, yes, this may be a comedy, But she's dead serious. She's not a comedian. This is not Lucille Ball. Actually, it is in a way, because Lucille Ball played all comedy seriously. And it only works, and it certainly did this time with Mariana Pizzolatto, when the performer can sing the music magnificently, but also play all the comic business seriously, so that we in the audience laugh. But to her, her goal is saving her beloved getting out of Algiers and getting back to Italy after they've been shipwrecked in the Mediterranean. And Isabella really is the representative patriot in this opera. There's an aria that she sings toward the end, Pensa alla patria, think of your country. And the fact that she's Italian and several of the people are Italian is important to the opera. It's right in the name. But that's a moment in the music and in the text, in the libretto, where it's really highlighted that this is about a love of Italy and getting back to their home country. So is this opera something that we might call today a dramedy? Dramedy sounds more like a camel with a a different hump. (laughs) Um, I don't like those words because it's a commedia seria. It's a serious comedy. Because when we look at comic things in life nowadays or back then, underpinning comedy is sometimes ridiculousness, but often tragedy. The Italians say something that's a wonderful word, riderci sopra, to laugh above it. In other words, that in the face of misery, in the face of difficulty, they find moments of laughter. That's a very human trait, but certainly a very Italian trait. And that's what Rossini put in this opera. To talk a little bit about the circumstances of its premiere and why it was written in 27 days, or by some accounts even 
fewer than that. And it was because the Teatro San Benedetto, the theater in Venice, where it was premiered, was kind of in a pickle. The impresario there had planned this opera, but it hadn't been finished yet. So he called Rossini and said, please, please write something. Help us. We planned another opera with another composer who wouldn't deliver. And this libretto, as so many libretti, existed already and had been composed by other people. It was composed by Angelo Anelli. And Anelli was a judge, a jurist. He was a patriot. And you could certainly look at his libretto and read it. And despite moments of humor that are very obvious, uh, it's really a serious story. And the humor came in the music, not in the text. And when we read it as a text, it's saying Italy needs to fight for herself. Italy needs to unite. Italy needs to throw off the shackles of Austria, of France, of the Vatican, of Spain in certain parts, and become a nation again, the nation that it was under the Roman Empire. And there's tons of humor in the music. In some ways, Rossini wasn't really beholden to characterizing the text through his music. The music is kind of a separate entity unto itself. It's very rhythmic in this opera, and a lot of that humor and sometimes even slapstick comes through in it. You know, there's this amazing scene at the very end of Act One where all of the characters are befuddled and expressing their confusion. Isabella has just discovered Lindoro. Lindora Isabella. Elvira realizes that Mustafa is interested in Isabella. They're all crazed. And they're singing about different percussion instruments that they feel are going on inside of their head. And it's basically nonsense syllables, but very, very rhythmic and very, very funny. semi-solo passages. There are seven characters. Everyone is off in his or her own astonishment about what is transpiring. And I can't believe he thinks this about me and she says that about her and so on and so forth. And words can only take you so far and music takes you much further. And it's an incredibly hard thing to sing. It's a wonderful thing for the audience to listen to. It's absurdist in a way because they're not using language, they're using sounds to communicate that. And it takes a genius, and he, Rossini is the most undervalued opera composer of all, by far. You think so? Oh, without question. Why? Only Berlioz comes close. (laughs) Because he was so good at comedy, and I think this is a better comedy, because it's about something, than is the Barber Seville. But he could have what the French call comédie larmoyante, a tearful comedy, such as La Cenerentola. He could have great tragedies. He could have, like Tancredi, he could have grand opera or his Otello. Um, He could have melodramas. He could touch all the forms. But his comic writing was so good, and comedy is much harder than drama to not only write but perform, that... People did not take seriously his serious operas. But 
every work that he did of the major works became a template for Wagner, Verdi, and all the composers who followed. So you think the comedy aspect undermined or veiled some of the seriousness and... Veiled, because they thought he was a lightweight. Right. Beethoven said um, to Rossini that, I like reading your score of The Barber of Seville because it's a very good comic score, but you should stick to comedy. <laughs> Do you think he was using comedy uh, knowingly to deliver a more serious or more patriotic message? No. He was an Italian, not a patriot. Verdi seemed more the patriot in that he led battles for unification from the stage. He was a senator. He engaged actively with political figures, whereas Rossini was the exponent of what I call Italianità, Italianness, and whether that is the enjoyment of nature, of beauty, of good food, of sex, of everything that we think of as those happy Italian values and virtues. Rossini was exhibit A, and I love him for that, because there's nothing wrong in life with pleasure. And by pleasure, I don't mean hedonism. I actually mean pleasure. When we can derive pleasure from things, whether it's the company of someone near us, whether it's a blue sky, whether it's music, or whether it's a slice of prosciutto, <laughs> all of that makes our lives better. And the Italians at their best have a, a wonderful ability to understand what they call il piacere, pleasure, as opposed to hedonism, which is just over the top. And the Italians, despite how they're described by people who don't understand them, are not over the top. They're very measured. And they appreciate things more than most people do. And that's among the many things I learned from Italy, and especially Rossini. He was that way to a T. He loved his food and drink, and that comes through in this opera as well particularly at the end, the way that Isabella manages to get herself and Lindoro and the Italians out of Algiers is to convince Mustafa to enter into the order of the Papatachi, which is sort of hard to translate. Do you have a good word for this, Fred? Well, Tachi means be quiet. And Papa is, it's like saying baby food. Right. And so... Be quiet and eat your food (laughs) is basically that. Right. And therefore, what they do is, brilliantly, um, what could be more Italian than a plate of spaghetti? Nothing at all. Even though we should point out in this opera that Isabella is from Livorno, the port city in Tuscany. But Mariana Pizzolato, who is Sicilian, who plays Isabella in this current production did not say Livorno in the opera. She says Palermo. If you listen carefully, you'll notice that she says that I'm from Palermo, which got a joke in the audience from the three of us who knew that. (laughs) Um, But it's based on a woman from Milan whose last name was Suini, S-U-I-N-I, which is a wonderful name. It means pigs. And somehow Signora Suini was abducted and taken to North Africa and cleverly figured out how to free herself. So there is a little bit of historical root in this. But um, the way apparently Signora Suini got her way out and the way Isabella does in the opera is by convincing Mustafa, the head of Algiers, that he will become part of a special society. 
it's like in the Wizard of Oz when the wizard gives out these citations that are worthless, but nonetheless you feel that you're part of something bigger. And so by making Mustafa part of the papatachi, in which you're not supposed to see anything, you're not supposed to hear anything, and you're not supposed to say anything. It's like the three monkeys who cover right. their eyes, their ears, and their mouth. Yeah. Um, all he does is eat. Yeah. That's all he's allowed to do. So while he's trying to figure out how to twirl spaghetti, the Italians flee, and they get on a ship, and they leave. And it's brilliant because it's comic. The spaghetti are iconic. Uh, Rossini knew his pasta incredibly well. One time in Paris where he lived in the later years of his life, he was presented with a dish of pasta, and they said to him, this pasta was brought in from Naples. And he tasted it, and he said, no, this pasta is from Genoa. And it, he was right. So the trick that she plays on him is sort of an extended uh, silent game, like when parents tell their kids, okay, this this is the quiet game. Right. She gave him a long time out. She gave him a long time out where he was just supposed to eat, and, and she, she gets out of there. And that's another really funny moment in the music because you have Tadeo reading the rules, reading this oath, basically, that Mustafa is meant to swear. And you have Mustafa copying him exactly line for line in this very mechanical sort of way and it's hilarious Fred, have you seen this production that's at the Met right now? I have indeed. I went once, and I had tickets to go again. I had uh, six Italian friends in who had never been to the Met, and I bought tickets. And that was the night that oh, no. an opera lover, let's call him that, I wrote about this for Opera Vore, uh decided to pour the ashes of a departed mentor. Oh, that was at this? Yes, into the orchestra pit. I heard about that. Canceling the performance. It was foolish. I commend my article to people to understand what happens when an opera performance is canceled. But Mariana Pizzolato playing the indomitable Isabella, even though she didn't get to sing it that night, went out on Lincoln Center Plaza and sang for the fans out there. That is the Italian girl in Algiers. That is making the best of a bad situation and riderci sopra to laugh above it by making sure that all those people who bought tickets would not miss out on hearing her sing. It was wonderful. Did you see it? Were you there? I was there. What did she sing? I posted the video on my article. She sang Cruda Sorte, which is the first aria that she sings in the opera, which basically means bad luck. Like, okay, we've been handed all of these limoni. We're going to make limonata. It was very moving. She sang it a cappella, of course. There were no instrumentalists. 
And the people who watched were very taken with that because bad luck can befall all of us. And it's how you respond to it that sets the measure of our lives and how we live our lives. And she completely got the character, so much so that she transferred it to real life and came out to sing for the people in the audience, which was beautiful. Is Isabella a difficult role to cast, would you say? It's a very difficult role to cast because Rossini's music can only be sung by gods and goddesses properly. Really, it is maybe the hardest opera music of all. Yes, Bellini's Norma, certain bel canto, uh, certain big roles like Brunhilde and Wagner, Isolde, Elektra and Richard Strauss. But those women tend to just stand there or act a little bit, and then they die. Whereas in the comedies of Rossini and also the dramas and the tragedies, they have to move, they have to act, they have to interact, and they have to really run the show off and on the stage. Certainly, uh, Isabella more than anyone else in all of Rossini. For the person who sings Isabella... She also has to capture all of her charm and cunning in the way that she sings, but also how seductive she is in a way. And I know that it's more multidimensional than that, but there is this beautiful aria in the second act where she is dressing herself in all of this Turkish clothing. And it's sort of a play, a presentation. She knows that she's being watched by Mustafa and Lindoro and Tadeo. And it's for them. She's doing it to allure them. And it's all part of her plan, eventually, to escape. But it's just this gorgeous moment. She's able to capture all of that charm and seduction in this aria. brilliantly staged by Jean-Pierre Ponel, who's no longer with us, so it's been restaged. But this is great theater in the Met production because she sits there at her toilette, at her table, with a mirror, and the three men are behind her looking through different portals. And all the character does, Isabella does, is turn her mirror so, in effect, we think she's looking at herself when actually she's looking at the man. And when she sings about Per Lui Che Adoro, which is the name of the aria for He Whom I Adore, the music says differently that I'm pretending I love Mustafa. I'm pretending I love Tadeo. I like Tadeo. He's Italian. But I do love Lindoro. And the way the artist, in this case Pizzolato, turns the mirror tells us everything we need to know, and all she's doing is sitting there. Brilliant. And one thing that's interesting is that the lovers in this opera, Isabella and Lindoro, they never have a love duet, um, which is maybe not so exceptional for Rossini, but in most operas you do have a love duet between the two central lovers. Lindoro comes on in the first act and sings about how much he loves Isabella. Isabella <laughs> 
but they just sing about their love separately and never ever together. Why do you think that well, is? Well, that's Fred? like a even Ronimes. That's true. There are many characters. You know, the anticipation sometimes better than the consummation. I'm not speaking from personal experience, <laughs> but <laughs> I've been told. No, but really, that that's the truth. I'm joking here, but it is the absolute truth that the imagination, we just saw L'Amour de Luan at the Met, and this is all about the imagination of the beloved rather than the consummation of that. Tristan and Isolde, they don't consummate it either. They sing endlessly about it. You wish they would get to it, <laughs> but they don't. That's part of an aesthetic that even today, there are many people who pine and mourn and mope and fantasize and that's the fulfilling part of their love act more than perhaps the actual love that they may engage in. Right. Certainly in opera and literature and art. Yes. No fun to be happy. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. Even, Makes it less interesting. It does. Even the happy ending of this is sort of like a return to the beginning. There's no guarantee that anyone's going to be any happier. That... It's let's get back to Italy. That's really what it's about. And, you know, I've heard people discuss that this is about sexism and racism and Christian versus Muslim. And no, we have to go back to the time. It was 200 years ago. The Italians were focused on forming a nation, on asserting their identity, on being Italians, on throwing out occupiers. All this other stuff was sort of comic relief. Uh, there were many rescue operas, uh, the abduction from the Seraglio being won by Mozart, Fidelio being a, a rescue opera, although it came after Italiano and Algeri. And there were many operas in which there was an exotic setting. The Magic Flute is set in Egypt. And many operas have exotic settings just so that audiences wouldn't relate to the context of what they knew. So while this technically is set in Algiers, it's about Italy. And that there's really no other opera that I can think of that is so about Italy as this one is. And that's really why I adore it. Joining us now in the studio are two young singers who the New York Times has called sunny-voiced and vibrant, respectively, for their performances in L'Italiana in Algeri. They are Ying Fang, who plays the role of Elvira, and Riab Shaeb, who plays Zulma, her slave in the opera. Welcome, Ying and Riab. Thank you. Thank you for having us. <laughs> Riab, you're originally from Tunisia, yeah. um, which isn't that far away from, from Algiers, from where this opera takes place. Mm -hmm. Do you recognize that part of the world in this opera? Is there anything real or true about it, or is it really a, a kind of exotic well, romantic notion? So of... I thought, you know, I thought about this because I'm like, oh, okay, so I'm like the only like Arabic speaking, <laughs> you know, I, I was born a few hundred kilometers away from that place. But it's like saying to a Spanish person, do you connect with the Inquisition? You know, it's a <laughs> bit like, no, I mean, yes, but no, like, it's similar because it has a lot of gold, a lot of ornaments, a lot of, you know, just beautiful fabric. So in that part, yes, it is similar. But in the other parts, it's not similar, you know. Uh, polygamy is not uh, is not legal. <laughs> Although my grandfather was pol uh, polygamous, and actually my grandfather had four wives. Whoa. Really? Yeah, and my grandmother on my father's side was the youngest of four, and they all lived together. So just saying. But it's not legal anymore. Not anymore. Did yeah. they, did, do you know what that was like? Did they talk about it? 
Did yeah, I mean, I grew up when I so I grew up in Montreal, but we would go back to uh, Tunisia kind of every second summer, and we'd always go. And you know, my grandfather had a villa, which is um, a big house with four side kind of mm-hmm. built in a square and and um, a little garden in the middle. And every wife had her side, <laughs> and they were sisters. Like they they actually felt like sisters. And two of them, my my grandma, my real biological grandmother, and um, my other grandmother still live together. They're the two last uh, still alive. Oh wow! Yeah, and they're they're sisters. They're you know, so they family. were they were family. They're family. Yeah. yeah, but it's that was like you know way back in the day. So it's but it's not legal anymore. Right. Well, Ying. Elvira doesn't seem quite so happy to welcome Isabella into her into right. her marriage. What's Elvira like? Does she love her husband Mustafa? Is she afraid of losing him? Why do you think she's upset when he wants to send her off to Italy with Lindoro and and bring Isabella into his life? Well, I think Elvira is young. She's probably, you know, one of the young new wives of Mustafa. In her life growing up, what she learned from her society, her family, is women should just be obedient to their husbands. And uh, she doesn't know there's other choices other than that. But when Isabella comes, you know, to the palace and be like the new target of her husband, well, she must be upset because she really likes Mustafa. She loves Mustafa because when Zulma said, why would you love this kind of man? I don't understand you. But then she said, I might be crazy and foolish, but I still love him. <laughs> He's still my husband. Yeah. yeah. But I, I think she just doesn't know there's other choices. Women could have other husbands or and even lovers she doesn't know that's a possibility. Do you, I think. Th- do you think that Isabella changes her mind at the end of the opera? Do you think that when she, when she watches Isabella come and, and trick these men and um, Isabella goes off with Lindoro and then she's there with her husband again, do you think she's different? Do you think their marriage will be different? I think so. Yeah? I think she definitely changes her. At least she opened her mind. Right. Mm. Right. She knows what women could possibly do and you know, enjoy doing. So Isabella is a, a liberated woman on this stage. Elvira becomes liberated over time, or her eyes are open. She becomes sort of empowered. What about Zulma? Zulma is there, and she's really supportive of Elvira and tries to open her eyes, too. Is she liberated and empowered? I mean, she's a, she's a slave on the one hand, but who is she? What's she like for you? Zulma is a very complex character in a way that, like you said, it's she's a servant. But at the same time, everything she says is so like, boom. She's like this 21st century woman stuck in in that time. Um, and she's very inspired by Isabella. Uh, and you see the scene with Ali where she's just like, boom, boom, boom. It's all these answers, snappy, witty. And yeah, we're talking about this uh, today, how... Zulma is very close to all the servants in opera. You know, you think about Susanna and Figaro. You think about Blanche mm-hmm. in, in Furon. You're thinking about uh, all these servants who Despina. are... Despina. Despina. And exactly. they have... They ha- they don't necessarily have money or they don't have resource, but they are in their head. They're very... They know what reality is, you know. And when I say to her, how can you even... I mean, he, he's been treating you like this and you're still loving him. Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> But there's there's a, a certain uh, level of awareness that servants have that 
people in royalty or higher rank are, you know, they dream about expectation and what, you know, the best world would be. And servants were like, no, this is real They're life. They're more down to earth. This, yeah. how, this is how things are done, you yeah. know. So I think she needs, as a woman in that era and in that context, she needs to be very strong to be able to deal with all of this. Um, also, I do think she's a bit more sexually, uh, you know, Liberated. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> then then Elvira, you know, and there's I think there's definitely something going on between her and Ali. Uh, I yes, think, I wondered. Oh, yeah. They have a oh, thing. Yeah. yeah, there is a thing. There's definitely a thing. I believe she's not I mean, she's not a wife of the Bay, but she's definitely a consort because she also kind of says certain things to him. That's a bit like on the snappy side, you know, but he doesn't really seem to care. So I think there is kind of a relationship, but it's not legally bound mm -hmm. by law and by God. <laughs> really, that's one of the big arcs of this opera. The very beginning, the chorus sings, here women are born only to suffer. <laughs> and then the very last words of the opera are, women can get what they want. Is it an empowering opera for women? Is it a, you know, it has all of these kind of outdated, maybe sexist mm -hmm. ideas about what women are, but in the end, it's the woman who saves the day and who really has all of the power. So is it an opera that gives women that power or gives women the permission to have it? Well, I feel like that's what Rossini wants you to think at, at first, you know, because uh, he needed to create an arch in the story of uh, of the opera. He needed to start somewhere and finish at another place. Um, but I do feel it is, it's an empowering uh, opera for women because it really shows this powerful protagonist, which is a woman, an Italian woman who travels and sails alone. I mean, what? Right. I'd like, wait, in like 1918, <laughs> you know, the 1800s. Yeah. But I think that's, yeah, that's what Rossini wanted. He kind of wanted to fool us a bit at the beginning to show, okay, well, this is women. And But he he definitely kind of brought us to another place by the end of the opera, which is, you know, women can definitely get what they want mm -hmm. yeah. with wit and not necessarily with body, but with wit. With and, wit. Yeah. yeah. And intelligence, mm -hmm. yeah. So what was your relationship like on stage? You're, you're basically always together when you're yeah. on yes, stage. Yes, we're, we're like twins. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> little sisters. You're a real team, and, you know, you sing alone, but you also sing a lot together. Right. What's it like working on a show where you really just have this pair in mm -hmm. an opera? Is it fun mm -hmm. to have your counterpart always with yeah. you? Yes, because I feel like... You know, we're, we, we're supporting each other. Exactly. Kind of really f makes it so much easier and so much more comfortable. Yeah. And we're able to just play and be ourselves and not be, you know, oh, my God, what do you think? Like, do you think they're going to like my singing? Or do you think am I a good colleague? Or do they need something? <laughs> and there was this ease between us. Yeah. But I just felt like, okay, Yang is here. So she got my back and I have hers. And... Yeah. Yeah, it was it was amazing actually for my for my med debut. I couldn't have asked for better, to be honest. Ying, what was this production like? You have lots of traditional productions of this opera. You have a few really kind of crazy, zany, modern productions of this opera. Mm -hmm. This one, I think, is pretty traditional, right? Yeah. Well, it's it's Ponell's nineteen seventy three production. Mm -hmm. Personally, I like the production very much. It's just classy, and the costumes are beautiful, gorgeous. And the set is so singer-friendly, projects the voice so well. Oh, yeah. So what do you mean by that? What makes it singer-friendly? Is it? It's very simple. There's like a, a huge wall in the back, and it just really projects the voice so well, like yeah. effortlessly. And that's very important. That makes sense. So this is Rossini. 
it moves very quickly. There's a lot of Italian, a lot of words. Is that a challenge in singing these roles? Yeah. I mean, Rossini is kind of the perfect... He's a bel canto composer, so he knows how to write for the voice. He knows the best vowel to put on the best note, okay? But sometimes he tricks us. You know, I don't know if he mm-hmm. hates his singers or <laughs> he loves them, but he has these, uh, these ense- usually these ensembles where there's so, I mean, there's so much words, you can't even read the page, okay? <laughs> right. So, yeah. It's like tongue twisters. It's such a tongue twisters, yeah. <laughs> but so. in Italian. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I think that was hard just to get that, you know, under your tongue. Yeah. Yeah. But get into the... Your system. Yeah, so every day, uh, before every show, we would do, we would go through the Act One finale, all the cast, mm-hmm. just to make sure that we're warmed up. <laughs> yes, <laughs> mentally, too. Yeah. So in the world of opera, you have people coming from all over the world, joining together in a cast and working together for a brief but concentrated period of time. And you meet all sorts of people and maybe see them a few times in different shows. But You ladies are friends in real life, and you know each other and live near each other, I learned. (laughs) Is it helpful in in terms of creating your characters and having chemistry with your partners on stage? Is it helpful to be friends and friendly outside of the shows that you're working on? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. It makes you feel comfortable. You're open to, you know, new things. If you want to try things out, you know that... They can take it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Ying Fang and Uriab Shayeb, for joining us today to talk about L'Italiana in Algeria. It was a pleasure to meet and speak to you both. Likewise. Thank you. Same here. It is time for our YouTube picks. If you want to find some good videos to familiarize yourself with L'Italiana in Algeria a little bit better, then listen up. This is for you, Fred. What did you pick for us? The fantastic septet that ends the first act in which all the characters express their confusion when words fail them and they just make sounds, the sounds going on in their head. And the YouTube pick that I chose is from the Met production from a cast that included Marilyn Horn mm. and is brilliant because they perform it so well. What about you, Marin? What do you got? I chose something completely different and sort of off the wall. It's it's actually the same scene as Fred's, but from a 2013 production. The director was Davide Livermore, and it is a sort of 60s James Bond-esque production of this show. Really, really wacky, zany. Elvira's in uh, hair curlers, and it's just it takes the comedy right to the very extreme. And it's just a good example of what a director can do in terms of reimagining a show. You know, there there are traditional productions, there are modern productions. This one is just so different from all of the traditional ones. And you might love it, you might hate it, but it just gives you a sense of the scope 
for creativity when it comes to imagining these shows. The hair, costume, and makeup in that video, Marin, is worth the trip to WQXR.org <laughs> alone to check out these videos at the He Sang, She Sang show page. Fred Plotkin, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a real pleasure. Estatum piacere. It was a pleasure for me, too. Thanks to both of you. You can see all of our YouTube picks on the He Sang, She Sang show page at WQXR.org. It is also there that you can leave us a note if you have something to say, so don't be shy. And if you like the show, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Yes, subscribe on iTunes. Subscribe on iTunes. And be sure to join us next week for a discussion about Verdi's Nabucco. He Sang, She Sang is a production of Classical New York WQXR. I'm Marin Lazian. And I am Mike Shobe. Thank you for listening.